Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk about political leadership in a time of crisis with David Gergen, professor of public service and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Gergen has been an advisor to four presidents, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton, and his renowned career also includes being editor-in-chief of U.S. News and World Report, a commentator on the PBS McNeil-Lara NewsHour, and a political analyst for CNN. But he has a special passion for working with rising generations of leaders. And in that regard, he's written a book uh, released this month called Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. David and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. David, congratulations on uh, providing a, a handy playbook for future leaders. And it certainly comes at a good time because I can't think of a more challenging time for not just future leaders, but current leaders. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I want to talk about some of those challenges uh, uh, that, that we face because you've been through so many crises in, in presidential administrations. But, but first, uh, uh, I just wanted to ask a general question about what motivated you to write this book and, uh, you know, what... Uh, what do you want people to get out of it? What's the message you want to convey? Sure. Well, well I, you, the same question you might be asking of you, Bob, why, why you did this. And you, you obviously plunged in and been doing this for some years because you care a lot and you're increasingly alarmed by the directions we've been taking. And that's, that's my situation as well. But now with this sense of urgency, that you know, the cascade of crises that we've never seen to solve and only get worse, um, it, it, it sets off alarm bells, I think, for people in our generation. And we're trying to do what we can to, you know, get things straight while we're still here. What's the main message, I mean, to, to future leaders that, that you want to convey in this book? Two messages. One is it's time to pass the baton to a new generation of leaders. I think the ones who are in office today is as worthwhile or worthy as many of them are as, as individuals. This just isn't working. Uh, the current situation isn't working. And I don't see a way out of it anytime soon. And our best hope, in my judgment, uh, is going to be a, a new a passing of the baton to a new generation, fresh blood, fresh vision, fresh energy, uh, and fresh alarm at where we've been. Uh, and, a, and a group that is, I think, increasingly, especially because so many of them carry debts out of college these days. You know, they they've now understand how dangerous debt can be at a national level. Uh, and in that sense, I think that the, the message is, let's pass the baton. And the second message is, we need to do a better job of preparing future leaders for, civic, for, for changing the civic culture. This is not going to be easy. It's a long-term prospect. There are a lot of perils along the way, um, and it's you're going to get you're going to you're going to pay a price. Um, the, the new generations are going to pay a price for what the old generations have left behind. 
but I think it's I think it's necessary. And you know, time is running out. Time has become quite urgent. You know, before uh, I, I turn to Tori for a question here, I want to, as a as a boomer, um, I yes. want to ask. Uh, a little bit about, uh, and I agree with you. It is it is definitely time for our generation to um, to pass the torch. But I want to look back just for a second because um, you know sometimes I feel like we're reliving the '60s. I mean, we're talking about issues that we were talking about then as if they were new. I mean, racial injustice, uh, uh, abortion rights. We've got inflation back again now. We've got war with Russia. I mean, this is it's a litany of issues plus the new ones. I mean, climate change. We used to talk about things like the environment back in the 60s, but I mean, the, the, the climate change has become much more existential. And of course, the budget issues that the Concord Coalition is concerned with is much worse. Yeah. And, and we've got new issues like school shootings. I mean, this is yep. just a, an incredible uh, amount that's uh, dumped on people. But I look back on the boomers and and I think um, did uh, the idealism that we had as, 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 as a generation back in the late 60s, uh, early 70s. Did <clears throat> did did we lose that and did we fail as leaders? Yeah, good, good questions. I, I, I do think that the boomer generation has been a disappointment at the, at the very least. Yeah, you can say that. Now, my own sense is, Bob, that in contrast to the World War II generation, which was, uh, you know, preceded the boomers and was the major, you know, if you, if you uh, also accept the X generation laps over into these two things. But in any event, we had terrific leadership uh, with the World War II generation. We had people who fought together when they were overseas. They saved the world, and then they came home to save the United States. You know, they peeled off their military uniforms in the late in the late forties and got into the fray, got into the arena. And I think for some of you know, it, 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 Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation, and in many ways, I think they were. I was born in forty-two, uh, but I've always considered myself an honorary boomer. And I, I think right, right from the beginning, this, this generation, the boomer generation, has had deep divisions within it, going all the way back to the baby days, you know, with Dr. Spock having one approach to, to raising children and more traditional people having a very different approach. But then, of course, in the 60s, Bob, as you'll recall, <clears throat> yes, there were an awful lot of people who, uh, and, and the, at the college level, who opposed the war in Vietnam. But you know where the support for the war lasted longest was on college. It was on college campuses. If you went to the University of Oklahoma or South Dakota or places out in the West, you know the the, the data showed that support for the war was higher in those in those colleges than anywhere else in the country. So I, I think that the Boomer generation, in particular with Vietnam, it put an axe right down the middle of our generation between the traditionalists. Uh, and those who really wanted a, a distinctive change. And we've never really resolved that. Um, we've gone back and forth, but we haven't had the energy. We haven't had the political will. And now our, part of our problem now is that people are exhausted. They're emotionally spent. And they no longer have faith that, that our institutions and our leaders are going to solve problems. Um, you know, when you and I were in, still in the 60s, I, I came out of the 60s feeling like we're on the march. You know, by the time we, we leave this good green earth, you know, we will have largely solved the racial problems in this country. You know, little did we appreciate how difficult that was going to be. And little did we appreciate how hard it was going to be to convince the boomers, especially, to do tough things. 
Well, on the racial front, we weren't the first generation to uh, learn how yeah. difficult that lesson was. It yeah. goes all well, back to Reconstruction. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like, it does go all the way back to Reconstruction and before. Uh, but, but nonetheless, we had a sense in the 60s that progress was possible, that progress was, 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 could happen. And our problem now, to a considerable extent, is that we have one problem, as you mentioned earlier, we have one problem after another cascading on onto each other, and we're not solving any of them. We're just we're, we're getting more and more dysfunctional. Uh, and, I, and I think that, again, is why we need some fresh blood. I would like to think the boomers could solve this problem, but I haven't seen much evidence of it. No, I don't think so. Uh, Tori, let's let, let's get some fresh Please. blood in this program. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard you describe yourself as being a short term pessimist, but a long term op- optimist. Yeah. I, and obviously, I can understand the sort of short term pessimism based on the conversation that we've had so far this, this today. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean, short term pessimist, long term optimist? And then how do you reconcile both of those within the same person? The next few years are going to be rough, no matter what happens. Um, we've got some political train wrecks that are ahead of us in the 2024 election, possibly in the 2022 election. But let's let's just start with midterm elections, which are just right over the horizon, just a few months away. Uh, we go into that election cycle with a president whose whose approval rating is 40 percent or even lower. Uh, and we know traditionally, if if, a, if the income or if the sitting president is under 50%, usually you lose the House of Representatives. And here we are, President 40%. So the outlook for the near-term midterms is, is that the Republicans will gain significant ground, and they will be able to block almost anything the Biden administration does for the next two years. I think the governance is going to be really, really hard over the next two years if the midterm elections turn out that way. And then two years down the road, then 2024, uh, you know, think of the issues that the Republicans have got to deal with the Trump, uh, the vote, how, how so many Republicans are held hostage by Trump. Uh, and, and the world is going to be holding its breath to see if we actually do revert to Trumpism in the general election. I think the chances, his chances of winning are going down some, but they're still there, especially if the Democratic Party is split apart. But even as we have the Trump you know, issues that are so uh, tangled up, Think about the Democratic side, where if the, if the Democrats lose the House, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Joe Biden to step aside uh, you know, before the general election. Well, then what happens to Kamala Harris, who would be the natural heir in most administrations? Well, there's a lot of internal, um, you know, there are people inside the administration, and especially in the black community who love Kamala Harris, her numbers are going up. But there are a number of other significant players who won't speak up publicly, but really believe that she can't win in, in 2024. And they're anxious to see if there's somebody else. But how do you, you know, you, you've got to be very, very careful about what signals you're sending. If Kamala Harris is the natural heir, on what basis are you saying she shouldn't run? Is it race? And then, of course, that tears the Democratic Party apart. So, I think there are going to be hard issues that come, and I think governance is going to be extremely hard, and then, and then especially in the next two years. But I think we could be facing a six-year period when it's very, very difficult for anybody to govern. So what makes you a long-term optimist? 
uh, a belief we can't go on like that. <laughs> 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 well, listen, I, I, um, I, I think one of the things that's reassuring uh, is that our historians like, you know, John Meacham, you know, mm-hmm. Goodwin and, and others, you know, essentially make the argument that we've faced existential threats to our republic in the past, at least at least three or four, going back to the early days of the republic and the Revolutionary War. It's, it, people forget that George Washington lost the first six out of eight battles that his, that his team uh, were, was on the field, and it looked like it looked like the British were going to reassert themselves. We came very close at the edge. Uh, Civil War period, obviously, you know, is almost too generous, but then we've also had existential threats from the, from the Great Depression as well as World War II. And history shows that we're often at our best when things get worse, uh, that that's what calls forward. And Abigail Adams wrote a famous letter to her son, John Quincy, teenage son, saying adverse times really does bring out the best. And that's what brings, that's what brings a certain nobility to our public life and also is a, is a uh, breeding ground for statesmen. Uh, and I think that, I think we're some in my judgment, there's there's growing evidence that while the next generation, the millennials and Generation Z, they're certainly not perfect, and you know there are many of them accused of being uh, uh, being overly assertive, uh, being entitled, uh, having a low drive for uh, yeah, a low work ethic. Uh, there are a lot of different allegations that have been placed against the millennials, but my experience has been. And classroom, and over the last 25 years, mostly at the Kennedy School, uh, that the number of people coming through now who are who are terrifically promising is going up. Uh, I've seen more and more evidence that there are people out there in their 20s and their 30s, and indeed in their 40s, uh, and so many of them are Generation X as well, um, that who really do want to change the country, and they're young. Uh, I say, in particular, I would point to the veterans who are coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, a patriotism, I, I think, that we haven't seen since the World War II generation. And, and they want, they're pitching right in. They're doing all sorts of things to see if they can't write it, and including trying to run for the House of Representatives to see if we can restore a, a, a central, a centrist um, civic culture. Uh, once again, I, I happen to be involved and supportive of a number of these veterans groups. So I, I forgive me if I'm up on my soapbox. Mm-hmm. But they have an awful lot to offer. S- simultaneously, we see a new set of young leaders emerging uh, among people of color uh, and among women. Especially, especially impressive, it, it seems to me, are women who are black who have increasingly chosen the high ground and moral ground in our politics. Mm-hmm. And I think that I don't agree often with their politics. Their politics are the left of my, uh, my own. But I celebrate the fact that so many of these young women, look, look, look at the Me Too movement. That started with a young, young black woman in her 20s. Look at Black Lives Matter, started by three black women who were in their 20s and early 30s. Uh, that's the kind of change that I think is going on. We see it uh, on the school shootings. Uh, there are all sorts of you know, up from the grassroots kind of uh, protests going on across the country on that. Uh, we're not there yet on, on national debt, but we're going to get there one day. 
I wanted to ask you a quick question about uh, millennials and Gen Zers. Uh, I know that this book was sort of written with them in mind. And you know, I know we sort of look to them as, as, a, as a different generation, right? They're, 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 they're a little bit different than, than the, the generations that have come before them. And, and when I look at it, I'm, I'm a parent of two teenagers. One of the things that I look at when I look at this new generation, they're the, the, the Gen Zers, is their willingness to accept change and adopt yeah. change. Yeah, so you're a different religion. I'm down with that. Your gender is fluid. I'm down with that. I yeah. can go with that. I can accept that. I can roll with that. Um, gay marriage, no problem. I mean, sure. there's just there's a willingness to accept change and and have you know multiracial friends groups, uh, multi class friend groups. It's it's like they're 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 welcoming to all. So I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were about what made Generation X or, or excuse me the Gen Zers and the Millennials sort of special relative to the, the generation. Well, I, I, I think your point, your point, Corey, are well taken. The ones you just made about the the welcoming change, the willingness to live with change. They feel very comfortable with with integrated classrooms. They expect that. They feel very very comfortable with with, with the gender balance. They accept that. Uh, some of them ruefully are, are, you know, making a point that if, if you're white, it's really increasingly hard to get into some of the best elite schools around the country. But I think as a general proposition, millennials are willing to accept that. Um, and so they're, they're to the left of the country. Uh, and some of the stuff that AOC believes, for example, I, I find goes too far from my taste. But, you know, we all learned that, the, that in the 60s that the people who, who came out looking at history will remember are the people who stood up for change, people who marched, the Martin Luther Kings of the world. And I think that's going to be true of this generation, of people who are going to be seen by history as, as encouraging, uh, I think are, are now in, in growing increasingly interested in our politics and want to get into it. I, I would say, say one point, two points of Tori. One is... That I think that related to the idea of being open to change is how how they embrace innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a highly innovative, and you know, uh, we 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 all we all had the experience of those of us who were older of of, being, of riding off America and thinking America couldn't keep up. We went through the whole just after you know the war was over with the, with the Cold War. Uh, we went through the idea that the Russians were ten feet tall, and we t- we discovered they weren't. Um, then we had the, then it was the Japanese. We thought, oh my God, the Japanese are coming! The Japanese are coming! They're going to overwhelm us! They're going to buy us out! They're going to buy everything inside. Well, we sold them a bunch of things like golf courses, you know, at Radio City, uh, which turned out to be very bad investments on their part. And they went into a twenty-year decline. Yeah. So, and 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 now we're sort of say, thinking, oh my God, you know, we've had terrorism and coming through. Uh, and now China has become the new, you know, the new, uh, the new threat. It's almost as if there was a there was a guy named Georgi Arbatov who used to run the uh, the U.S. Soviet uh, uh, center. If that was a think tank in in Moscow, and as the Cold War ended and the, and the wall fell, Arbatov you know, said to Americans, "We're going to do something very, very dangerous to you Americans. We're going to remove your sense of having an enemy." It's the one thing that's held you together. Uh, and I think there's some evidence of that being true. Mm-hmm. That, uh, again, the, we, we, don't have a, we don't have any clear goals as Americans. We don't have anything that sort of excites you and sort of gets your blood going. You know, I wondered about the idea of uh, if, it would be, if it would strike a chord when the, when the dust settles in Ukraine and, and the fighting ends. 
could we could we could America lead the way in developing an international peace corps of, of young people who would go from around the democrat the democracies and perhaps beyond who would sign up to go spend time trying to repair and rebuild the Ukraine? I, I think that could be a you know a sort of a moving motivating kind of force to show that we can actually do something and we care. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and I are talking with David Gergen, past advisor to four U.S. presidents and now professor of public service at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and I are talking with David Gergen, past advisor to four U.S. presidents and now professor of public service at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and author of a new book, Hearts Touched with Fire, a great new book, which is kind of a guidebook for emerging leaders. And, uh, you know, David, people often debate whether leaders are born or made. Uh, And there are lots of uh, examples. Historians go back and forth on this. Um, I I was thinking of it in the context of a current example that a lot of people are familiar with, and that's uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky in Ukraine, who, um, you know, before the war, people pretty much seemed to dismiss. um, And uh, and and then, you know, once the war started, he's he's become an admired world leader. And of course, we don't know how the situation in Ukraine is is going to end. But, uh, you know, is that a born leader or is that somebody where the crisis made the leader? Well, I I think, Bob, it's it is rather a combination of of the two. People are born with certain predilections, certain natural traits that can advance them. For example, Dwight Eisenhower when he was, you know, he, he grew up in a family of uh, four or five children. They, they, didn't, they, they didn't have much to live by, lived in a tiny little house. Uh, but he was always the, the kid uh, when, when it was in a football season, touch football season, he was the kid who organized all the games. Uh, he was the kid who organized all the baseball games. And he had this sort of more natural quality. But he was, he, at that point, he was still a very minor figure. And, and, and indeed, it looked as if he was going to be a minor figure for the rest of his life. He, you know, went to he went to West Point. He was grades were low. He just didn't seem to. He he was a um, football player there, but he got injured and he never really developed. And it looked like his life was on uh, stalling out. His, his career was stalling out. <clears throat> and then he got assigned to a place called place called Panama, and he went there, and he met a, a man named Fox Connor, who was a superior officer. Who was turned out to be a terrific mentor? Uh, they they took um, Fox Connor introduced him to all sorts of books, the literature of leadership, uh, which he in which he studied. He studied various battles that uh, Connor worked out with him, uh, and and when he emerged from that assignment, working having I think six months to a year under Connor, Connor's uh, tutelage, he went to the Army uh, War College, or he, he went to Fort Leavenworth for training. For a big, 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 big training program, he came out number one in his class, and his he was just he shot upwards after that because he he had been he he'd been not he the context favored him, but he also applied himself and he had the help of some third party, and I think uh, Tori I'm sure has faced this in life uh, as a woman 
You know, it's often been hard in the last and in, in, in the beginning, it was very hard for, to get women to support each other. Now, fortunately, it is changing dramatically and women can find mentors. They can find sponsors uh, that they couldn't find before. But I but it has been a it's been a long go getting to the point where women had really an equal place at the starting line. Well, and that brings up a question I wanted to ask you, sort of the nuts and bolts about uh, becoming a leader. You talk about the importance of having a mentor, which yeah. I did not have uh, growing throughout my pro- professional career, and I've sort of felt the lack of it. I've got two teenage children that are that are in college and on their way to college and would very much like to set them on the path towards success. I think they've got some great innate skills. And one of the things I'd like to, to pass on to them is the need for a mentor, but how do you go about finding one when somebody doesn't actually step forward and say, hey, I think you're neat. I'd like to step up and, and mold you and shape you into a leader. That doesn't happen every, every day. So how, do, how does someone go out and actually seek out a mentor? Well, it, it's, um, I, I think it's a lot easier. You can do it in both high school and in college, but I, I, I think it is a question of judging the, the willingness, the, inter, the interest level, uh, you know, you don't want to just have any person be your mentor. You really want somebody who wants to be your mentor, right. who, who sees something in you, some promise in you that can be developed. And, you know, I, I think it's one of the most exciting and, and important things that a leader does. I, I once uh, had the opportunity to interview Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore, Ron Heifetz, not from the Kennedy School, sat down with him on an occasion um, to interview him. And I asked him the question, you know, how... Uh, how did you build Singapore from a third world country to a first class country so quickly? How did, the, how did this happen? And he said, well, you've got to understand the most important role of a leader, and that is to find other people, other people who have the promise of future leadership. He said, he said, I, he said when I was running Singapore, I, had the, I, I, felt, I felt my role was that like a sheep herder and going out to a new litter of puppies and looking them over and playing with them a little bit. And after a while, I could say, yes, I want this one, and I want this one, you can forget the rest. And he chose very, very wisely, he had a really good eye for it. And some people are just good at that. They, they, they're good at spotting promise. And, and knowing, you know, uh, the, the mentorship is partly to knock off some of the rest stuff or stuff that's not working for you, to, to get rid of that. But the critical thing and, and mentorship and being mentored is to get much, much better at what you do, to have some area of your life. Um, and the, the McKinsey folks have, a, have what they call a T-shaped model of development. And that is you have, you have wide breadth over a, a lot of different areas, but you don't go very deep. But in one area, you go deep. And you're very, very talented in that one area, and you're known for that. And that's sort of the, 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 the vertical bar in a T. You have, you have the, t- the top of it and then that vertical bar. And I think that's really, really important of how you go. You know, Jim Collins has written this book that's sort of a favorite in leadership called From Good to Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's really more about CEOs and how they, you know, how, how they take their companies from being mediocre to the, to the best. Um, uh, and, but I think the lessons there apply equally to individual leadership. Uh, and that is that you develop some part of you becomes excellent. Some part of you is extremely reliable. To, in today's world, too, Tori, as you know so well, you know, people move around a lot. It's different from what it be, used to be that you'd work your whole life for, you know, uh, General Mills or something like that. Now you have eight or 10 or 15 jobs by the time you're 30, 35 years old. 
you you do need to move around. You need to you need to try out. It's a lot easier to figure out what you don't want to do than it is to figure out what you do want to do. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> <Do> they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, the number of jobs I had is I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's dependent upon the industry that you choose. I mean, I spent my entire year like professional career in politics. I mean, in Capitol yeah. Hill, it's just I mean, that's just sharp elbows everywhere. No one's interested in helping anybody else because if I help you, it means I'm not helping myself. So yeah, yeah, exactly. That, yeah. that, is, that issue. Yeah. There is that issue, and people sort of say, "How do I? How, how do I do this?" I mean, I know there 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 is a a group that's been formed now. The alumni from the Harvard Business School started it, but it's it's a wider spread thing um, called uh, Leadership Now. Uh, and and I've spoken to their their groups on several occasions, and almost invariably, the question becomes, okay, I'd really like to make a difference in this world. I've I've, I've got a job; it's a full time job. I've got a spouse at home who's also working. We have young children. We have a big mortgage, and we also have a, de- a college debt. How can I do this? What can I do? And, and it's not an easy question to face. I, I think you've got to make some very tough choices, but it can be done. And I and I, I think there are a lot of mentors out there now or potential mentors who would like to be asked, but they're not quite sure. You know, it's a little awkward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got to be careful as a, because of gender issues. You've got to be very careful as a guy to, yeah. you know, to, to, to volunteer your time as a mentor, you know, becomes suspect just from the get-go. And so you've got to be very, very, um, I think, uh, cautious about things like that. You know, uh, you talk a lot in the book uh, about, uh, you know, being true to yourself uh, as you develop as a leader. And uh, in this uh, remaining couple of minutes in this segment, I wonder if you could touch upon that because it really strikes me that the, one of the ways you can really go off course as a leader is to start following the crowd because you get positive yeah. feedback or something and, yeah. and it might take you off of your true self. I, I, I agree with that. And the, uh, listen, the, the leadership is a journey, a journey of a lifetime. And, and but it starts that, 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 that journey starts from the end. You have to, you have to learn, know who you are. You have to learn who you are and what your values are, what you, what you value in life. And develop what my friend Bill George calls, you know, a true north. You need to you need to uh, develop an internal understanding, and then you have to develop self mastery. Uh, you know, overcome your the temptations that come along in life. Uh, I listen. I went. I first went to work in the White House for Richard Nixon, out of all people, um, and it was extremely interesting. But he was the best. He was the best strategist I've ever seen, Bob. But he had inner demons. He had never learned to control. And so a large part of the early journey in leadership is about getting yourself under control. You have to learn how to lead yourself before you can serve others. And uh, did you see that, like, contrast that with Reagan? I mean, was he, it, it seems to me that he was a man that was with in, inner peace and knew who he was. And yes, was, absolutely. You know, and we say, we, we say people are so, sort of comfortable in their own skins. In Reagan's case, he was serene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't need to be president it was not something it, it, his his life was quite full as he saw it his movie life you know the, the the last time i saw him was about yeah before he sort of went into seclusion uh, i was over a weekend and i thought he would spend a lot of time reflecting on his presence he swapped movie stories the whole weekend <laughs> <laughs> that's Talk what about, yeah that's being really true to yourself life. yeah yeah. 
you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with David Gergen, uh, professor at the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, advisor to presidents, and uh, author of a great new book, uh, Hearts Touched with Fire, uh, a guide for emerging leaders. Uh, we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with David Gergen, past advisor to four U.S. presidents and now a professor of public service at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and author of a great new book called <coughs> Hearts Touched with Fire, a guide for uh, emerging new leaders. Uh, Phil Smith, uh, speaking of emerging new leaders, uh, the Concord Coalition National Field Director is also going to join in this segment. And uh, Tori, let's uh, let's go back to you for uh, one more question about boomers and Xers and <laughs> millennials and how that all works out. Actually, I had a question about uh, leadership. We talked about certain qualities that 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 sort of are innate with a, a leader, uh, you know, tested by crisis and and survives, and a sense of humor. But I also wanted to talk about stamina. Yes. I, just in my own personal experience with being a project manager, but then also watching my husband, who's an executive, the physical stamina that it takes to be a leader is um, is astounding. I think. I, I think that's absolutely right, and it's not. It goes unrecognized sometimes, but uh, it's one of the reasons that the, the military, you know, they work you out so much. They physically want to keep you fit. The Center for Creative Leadership, which is one of the major um, uh, executive education programs for CEO types. Yeah, you know, when they when they they get you for a couple of weeks to go off on you know sort of a, a, a retreat of some sort, the first thing they do is is, is to take your blood in the morning. Yeah. The first morning you get there, they want to get they want to analyze and see if you're well. Uh, the wellness aspect of this is really really important, and I, and I, I think that uh, Tori, you've really raised a question which is going to be pressing down on us in the next few months, and that is the, the stamina that that if Joe Biden is running against Donald Trump, and if they're the nominees of the party, if they're going to be governing in their 80s, as they would be, will they have the stamina to, to make a good go of it? Uh, is, is, that respons is it responsible to have someone in his 80s, frankly, running the most complex, most powerful government in the world? Or should they, in effect, say, we've had our turn, uh, and it's time to look to people in their 50s and maybe 60s. But, you know, how are we going to how do you think we ought to handle that as a country? I think it's going to be a very sensitive topic. Phil, yeah. let's bring you into the conversation. Thank you. Uh, hello, Professor Gergen. I'm coming to you today from Athens, Georgia, home of the University of Georgia. And yes. uh, one of the first, thank you. One of the first things that I did when I found out we were going to have you is call a friend of mine who uh, was taking one of your classes up at Harvard. And he uh -huh. said, you have to ask him about crucible moments. Uh -huh. It's such a key thing with you. And I've heard you talk about it before, but would you describe to us the lessons that we can learn from these yeah. amazing crucible moments that, that occur? Well, what we know is, uh, Phil, it's a good, good set of questions. Um, we know that many people can go through life and everything is, you know, uh, goes smoothly and they never really face crises, but that's rare. Increasingly, over, over a period of lifetime, at some point, you're going to have one, two, three crises can hit you all at once. Uh, and, it's, and, and the big question is how you survive and 
where do you go from there once you get hit by one of these? And that's what uh, uh, psychologists have been trying to figure out. Um, the, uh, there's a guy named Daniel Seligman, who is a leading uh, a psychologist in this, in this field. He's father of positive psychology. In any event, he makes the argument that there are three different kinds, kinds of people who come out of crucibles. There's one set of people who come out and they really got knocked down and they never recover. It's maybe 15 or 20 percent. There's another group that comes through uh, and they're, they're, they're badly hurt to begin with and trying to respond. But about within a year, they're sort of back on their feet and they have, I mean, you know, they have resilience, as we call it. It's really critical to them. But there's a third group that not only has the resilience that comes through it, but they actually grow stronger as a result of, the, of dealing with the crucible. Uh, that was true of, of Franklin Roosevelt, for example, who was struck down by polio. He was sort of a dandy when he was growing up. He, he got his, his, his family called him Bernie Wooster after a, a figure in, in, in British uh, BBC life. Um, but in any event, he wasn't taken all that seriously until he went through polio. And he toughened up a lot uh, doing that. And, you know, frankly, the title to my book, uh, uh, hearts touched with fire uh, comes from uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who was a young man, grew up in Boston, prominent family. When Lincoln issued his first call for volunteers for the Civil War, now, uh, Holmes could easily have ducked to be as he had a prominent family. This is what Teddy Roosevelt's father did. He ducked and, and uh, embarrassed his son no, to no end. Um, but, but in any event, Holmes signed up. He was 23 years old. He signed up, and in the battles that, that followed, three times he was grievously wounded, and, and he was the last time he was left for dead on the battlefield. Um, but he miraculously survived. He became eventually became a Supreme Court justice, a storied Supreme Court justice. But he gave a speech, and 20 years after the war ended, the Civil War ended, about what how that war had affected his generation. Um, and he, he spoke about it in a very positive way, because so many people hardened up, they found their steel. And he said, it's given of a man that he must live the passions of his time. He must live the passions of his time. And he said, in our youth, basically, and my generation growing up, we had the great good fortune of our, our hearts being touched with fire. Uh, and we became different people as a result of coming through those crucibles. And, and being set on fire internally and finding great satisfaction from service, even though he'd been wounded so grievously. I had a person, you know, that was very inspirational to me when I yeah. first started out in the early 90s. Um, he was um, education secretary in the 90s, Dick Riley. He pulled me yeah. aside and, and told me one time the importance of public service and talked about how honorable it was. And I, and I remember that just it, it, it left me, you know, so touched to use your word. I felt like I'd been touched by someone important to share this message with me. And it made me think about public service and how important it is. Uh, and you mentioned it earlier. Is this, do you think it should be required or should it just be voluntary? Well, I'm so glad you knew Dick Riley. He was, he was one of my heroes earlier in life. And he and Bill Clinton were very, very close they, on school reform. Uh, listen, I, I am become, the, what I think would help us most in terms of developing young emerging leaders, uh, it, it would be a, a robust program of national service, not required, but it create an expectation and a capacity for young people to go take a year out 
uh, say a gap year uh, before going on to school and do, and and in a service capacity, whether you're working on at the environment or whether you're working in a hospital or whether you're working trying to help people who are homeless or there are just a, there are a whole lot of things that young people could be doing. You, you give us a year of national service, we take a year off your college debt or whatever debt you're carrying from your community college or whatever. If you give us a couple of years, we'll take two years off. And what I think I, what I will, we will find, and this is not a new idea. Bill Buckley was for this. He was for mandatory as a conservative, for mandatory service. I, I think we ought to have voluntary service. But what I do believe is if people could, growing up in urban America, could go out and spend a year or two working in national service in rural America, and vice versa, that people in your rural America come and figure out why people are so crazy who live in urban America, it would do enormous good for the country of creating a healing process where we seem to come back together again. We have to find ways that are incentives. And there are very few incentives now for young people to throw themselves into public service. Even so, the number of young people who want to serve is now far larger than the number of spots we have for them. We have to, we, this has to be a creative process. Uh, before we go, we've still got a few minutes left, but I wanted to uh, just to put in a plug for the book, uh, Hearts Touched with Fire. Uh, it's got a subtitle, How Great Leaders Are Made. And David, I imagine people can get it at bookstores or order it online. Yes, yes, you can order it online right away. And, it, and I, we were very uh, pleased to hit the bestseller list here. Um, Great graduation for, again. Out of the gate. One thing that comes to me is a. Uh, is leadership more difficult now? Is it becoming more difficult? I mean, things are coming at people so fast with social media. It's a totally different uh, yeah. environment than, than uh, we had uh, when, when we were uh, growing up and, and other generations. So is the task of leadership more difficult because of that? Yes. Um, it, and social media has turned out to be a two-edged sword. You know, on one hand, it gives access to people to, to, to join in the conversation. You know, they have Twitter and one thing and another. So that it, it, it is democratizing in that sense. But we also know that it is the other side of that sword uh, is that time and time again, it's being used, and exploited by people who want to bring you disinformation, persuade you that things aren't true. And that say, for example, that Donald Trump was elect, was, was, was denied, wrongfully denied the presidency. That just isn't true. But it's, it's taken hold in, the, in, in certain parts of, the, uh, of our population. So it is, I think it is harder to govern. And it's, um, I saw a study the other day that came out that basically when a big national news story breaks, you've got about, you'll have about four days of, uh, of intense uh, uh, coverage. But after that, the searchlight moves on to other things. This may happen now in, you know, what's going on with the, the shootings in Texas and Buffalo. You know, they may they they may disappear off our public screen very quickly and nothing happens. And we wonder why people don't take government seriously or why they're exhausted with it or they're they're up, you know, they've lost their faith in it because we're not producing results and we're not sticking with sticking with the, the subject at hand. It would be good if we just took one of these crises that we've been talking about and solved it. And then people would feel, OK, maybe we can take another one now. But we've got to have sort of a going to the moon kind of quality about this, a can-do quality. Yeah, I think that uh, 
I'd take any one of them uh, yep, to solve exactly. because there, there is that feeling of uh, uh, more problems and, and less action uh, yep. on them. But yeah. I want to I want to just close on an optimistic note that uh, that you nevertheless are uh, a long term optimist. And yes. obviously we share that uh, with you at the Concord Coalition. Otherwise, yeah. we'd uh, we'd go out of business because you have to, you know, with a lot of these things, whether it's the budget is leadership, climate change. A lot of these things, you, you, you know, you, you take incremental now for a better long term future. And, uh, and I do think there are glimmers of hope out there. I do think that the number of young people, emerging people, uh, you know, I think they're going to they're they're discovering that they can make a difference. Um, and I think that's going to I, I think the next you're going to see a transformation over the next 10 or 15 years. We may or may not be around to see it, but I think it's coming and I think it's going to be positive for the country. Just people should just remember who we are. We've overcome great difficulties, existential threats in the past, early in the Republic, Civil War, the Great Depression, the World War II, and all of them. We ultimately prevailed. We will ultimately prevail here unless we lose our will, unless we lose our way and lose our true north. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for this week. Dorian Field, thank you for joining us, man. And of course, Bob, thank you. We really appreciate your uh, coming back on the show. And I want to thank Tori and Phil uh, also. Uh, This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 